some of you know where uh, that song comes from, Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy has followed me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Uh, last night as we were singing that, I was thinking of uh, John and Amy Bell. Some of you may or may not be aware, but Amy Bell's uh, grandpa uh, passed away this last week, and uh, she was so close to him. John is uh, one of the pastors here on staff, and actually today they're at the viewing, um, and then tomorrow there's the funeral. So I just want to lift them up. I want our body. Can you just pray for them and their family? She was so close to her grandpa. I've seen some of the pictures uh, I saw one yesterday where her dad was cutting her hair, or her grandpa was cutting her hair, and just these awful bangs that he was cutting into her hair, which I, th- I guess is back in style for girls. Um, so if you've got bangs here today, we are about bangs in this church, <laughs> as well as eyelashes. Uh, so uh, you are welcome. I'm, I'm so sorry about that. The last time I busted the eyelash crowd, and boy, did I hear they are fierce about their eyelashes. So we are about bangs and eyelashes and spanks and all that stuff in this church. She says, stop there. Okay. But we're just, we want to lift up the Bell family. They're so special to us. And I think you can get in, at least for me, before I lost my parents, like I don't know, people die, grandparents die, you know, death is a part of life, and you just can kind of blow by it because it's all around us. And one of the dangers, I think, of the information age is we're just seeing death, we're inundated with death all around us, so we just don't have any capacity to know how to feel appropriately about the death that's close to us because we're just experiencing so much death. But uh, Amy and John, if you're watching this morning, we just love you in this place, and we love your children, and we love your extended family, and our hearts are with you today and tomorrow as you grieve. There's grief and there's relief in this homecoming experience. We are in uh, the second uh, in our series, Overcomers. You overcome stuff in your life? Um, I think it's one of the greatest feelings in my life is when something's coming after me and I overcome it, you know, the Bible says, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. I love when I'm able to do that. I hate when I'm not able to do that. And, uh, this passage we're going to look at today is a pretty vulnerable passage. I would say the difference between transparency and vulnerability, they're kind of used interchangeably. Transparency is just being open and real about something, but vulnerability is being open and real about something with someone else that they could hurt you with. So it's it's saying, I'm going to give you this revolver and it's loaded and you could shoot me with it. Just being real without any, you know, fear of consequence, that's keeping it real is great. But being real about something, somebody can come back around and say, you said this, and I'm going to use this to hurt you. And I can tell when I'm up here and I'm just real and when I'm given something that could be used against me. And, And today feels like one of those messages for some reason. And I don't know why, but as I was reading through it this week, I'm like, there's just some things in here that are just very uncomfortable to acknowledge in the presence of other people. And you're lucky, you can just sit there and you can 
nod or you can just stare at me and you don't have to like put yourself out there at all, but I really want to invite you to put yourself out there today with me, if you will. Because I really feel like there are just parts of our heart that were like, Jesus, you can come in, but that one room, I'm going to keep that room nice and closed tight, and I'm not letting you into that space. And I just think there are certain spaces at a, at a real, almost like childlike level, these desires and these hurts inside of us that Jesus wants to get in and heal, and we just won't let anyone else in, and we won't even let him into that space. And I think you can know Christ, invite him into your heart, and just keep certain rooms untouchable and off limits to him. And I don't want the church to be that. I think you know me well enough to know that it to me is playing church. That is not being the church. And so we just invite Jesus to come into those places. And I'm not even promising this is going to be a good message. I have no idea. You can, you know, give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down after I'm done. I just want to make sure no matter what I say or how good I do, that you encounter Jesus today and you don't let him just inspire you. You let him transform you. Okay. I uh, was disciplining my son, which is a daily occurrence. Uh, at this age, I have an 11 year old and a 12 year old. This was Joshua. I don't have to discipline him quite as much. But it was, he was 12 years old and he was throwing some sort of tantrum that we couldn't even speak logic into him. And he threw himself on the floor. Anybody have parents that throw their kids on the floor? Like that level? They're not just being rebellious, they just are like, I am going to just throw myself on the floor. And I pulled him up off the floor and I was ready to just go loco and la cabeza on him, which is crazy in the head. And I took him into my bedroom, I put him on the edge of the bed, and I was laying into him like a good father would do to his son. Anyone who loves their son chastens their son, right? I'm chastening him. I'm not going to let you be that way. I don't want to like hear from a boss when you're 26 that you threw yourself on the floor because you didn't get your way. That's not going to fly in this house. I think Jordan Peterson said, don't let your kids behave in any way that would make you want to hate them. So you let them do that and you end up hating them. Part of that's your fault, right? So I think I told Joshua that. He didn't understand that at age 12, but I'm like, you'll understand Jordan Peterson someday. Um, <laughs> But we were talking and I was getting after him and I don't know what it was, but all of a sudden I could tell the lights went off. And it wasn't like he wasn't listening to me out of rebellion. Something in the affect of his face shut down. And because we adopted him, my finger is on the pulse of sort of shut down and maybe he's going to a certain place. And we've heard that in puberty, certain things will manifest that have been sort of latent underneath the surface for a long time about their past and memories may come up. And I just felt like we're in that moment. And I looked at Joshua and I said, Joshua, you you do know that I love you, right? And he didn't respond. And I was like, "Your, your dad and your mom love you. Like we chose you. We went all the way to Africa to find you in that orphanage and we picked you. We didn't want anyone else other than you and you're my son. 
and you'll always be my son and I'll always be your father. There's nothing you can do, even throwing temper tantrums that would make me not like you and not love you. And then I said this to him, Joshua, look at me, look at me. And he looked at me and I said, Joshua, I will always love you and I will never leave you. Look at me, it's sort of a goodwill hunting moment for him, right? No, I'm serious. I will always love you, son, and I will never leave you. I will never leave you, buddy. I know you are abandoned. I know you've got all kinds of things in your life. I will never abandon you. My affection is strong for you. I love you. I'll never leave you. And tears just welled up in his eyes. Crocodile tears come down his face. We don't see this with him that often. And as this moment took place, I thought to myself, I'm so much like this. Even though I'm 48, I just want somebody to say, no matter what, I love you and I'll never leave you. In fact, it's, it gets more embarrassing the older I get. Because I wouldn't state it that way. That wouldn't really feel manly. It would kind of feel needy. It would feel weak. But if I'm honest with you, I just want people to love me and I want people to never leave me. There's abandonment issues, there's attachment issues that I've got, that you've got. Amen. And he crawled up on my knee and I hugged him and he curled up in the fetal position like a little baby and I just rocked him like a baby. When I was reading this passage today, it's of two grown women that I'm seeing little girls. Yeah. That's what I'm seeing, little girl hearts and their longings, their desires, their fears, their insecurities that are coming forth. And it's justified because they're broken and they're in a broken world with a broken dad and a broken mom. And so we're gonna read a passage of scripture of Leah and Rachel, and I have, I don't think I've ever read a, a longer passage than this. And we're going to read the whole thing through chapter 29, verse 1 to 35. And it's going to be, when I'm done, I'm going to say, here were the words of the Lord, just like a reformed pastor, right? <laughs> and you're going to be like, thank you, Jesus. Okay. This is coming a part of the story where Jacob deceives his brother um, and then flees and his mom tells him, get out of Dodge, right? You need to leave and you need to go to, to find your uncle Laban and his family so that you can work for him and you can find a wife, right? In the family, right? Because that's what they did back then. They went to family reunions to find their spouse. And that's still going on in Lowell, by the way. Uh, so we really understand this passage. If, if you crossed over into Lowell from Ada Cascade, this, this would be a good story to see how we function, specifically south of 96 in Alto area. Anybody, we know anybody from Alto. We love you out there, but you're gonna see that God's reading your mail in this passage of scripture. Here we go. Are you ready? I said, are you ready? This isn't my word. These are God's words telling us this story. It says, then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the end or to the land of the Eastern peoples. And there he saw a well in the open country with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from the well. 
and the stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. And then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. And Jacob asked the shepherds, my brothers, where are you from? Oh, we're from Haran, they replied. And he said to them, do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. And Jacob asked them, is he well? Yes, he is, they said. And here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is still high and it's not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to pasture. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. And while he was still talking to them, Rachel, chicka bow wow wow came with her father's sheep for she was a shepherd. She was a pastor. And when Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban, this is what I'm talking about, Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Have you ever done anything to impress a woman like that large stone? Watch this baby doll. I'm going to move that away from the well all on my own. Here we go. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. That's what you do on the first date, right? And he told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father. And as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, you are my flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. You wish your boss would just say that to you tomorrow? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah had weak eyes or her eyes didn't sparkle. They weren't beautiful. But Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful like an old Coke bottle, right? And Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it's better that I give her to you and some of these other men out here. So stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. He was bewitched with her. And Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed. I want to make love to her. That was him asking her dad for her hand in marriage right there, right? <laughs> this is what the wedding day is like for the guys. The girl's like, do I look pretty? And they're like, come on, I want to get going here. <laughs> so Laban brought together all the peoples of the places and gave a feast but when the evening came, he took his daughter, the older one, Leah, and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. It was different in those days. Okay, they sort of covered in a veil and it was so different. And if you did that, that's cool for you. But that's not how it goes down in our culture. But this was their culture. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. Wouldn't you be surprised? So Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Oh, how the turntables, as Michael Scott says, right? And Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. 
Finish this daughter's bridal week, this one over here, and then we'll give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, which probably made her feel great. And then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. She never got worked for for one single day, and her sister got worked for for 14 years. And Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant, and Jacob made love to Rachel also. And his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah, and he worked for Laban for another seven years. And when the Lord saw that Rachel was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. And Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and she named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord has heard I am not loved, he gave me this one too, so she named him Simeon. And again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I've borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. And she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son this time, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. And she stopped having children. I know this feeling that Leah expresses in some ways, the feeling of trying to do things so that people will love you, to strive, to achieve, to give them what they want by being the very best version of yourself, saying over and over again, Surely now they will love me. Now at last they will become attached to me. I feel like this has been my whole life. I was talking to Sarah, who's on staff here, about this passage and how I was trying to embody the different characters in this passage, which is how it works for me when I'm putting a message together. I try to imagine myself in the text and what it would feel like to be all of them. And... um, She said something off the cuff that stuck with me. She said, this is going to be so good. I have a feeling people sitting in the church each weekend relate more to Leah than they do to Rachel. And I was looking at that passage, just Leah's trials and traumas in Genesis 29 are just replete. Not feeling noticed being one of them, not feeling inspiring. Rachel's presence moves Jacob emotionally, not feeling captivating. Leah's eyes didn't have that sparkle, not feeling attractive. Rachel had this lovely figure and she was beautiful. She didn't. Not feeling chosen. Jacob chose Rachel over Leah, not feeling pursued. In verse 20, Jacob labored for actually 14 years for Rachel. Not feeling protected. Leah's father uses her in some sort of trick on Jacob. Imagine your dad not protecting you not feeling respected. Her father's like, just finish out the week, honey. Not feeling enough. Jacob's heart loved Rachel more than her. Not feeling love. She was loved if she bore children in her eyes. Not feeling attachment. She had sex with this guy, but felt no intimacy coming the other direction. And ultimately not feeling God, expecting love from God. You'll see it all the way at the end of the passage was her last resort, finally when nothing else worked in her own power, she turned to God. You relate to that? And then finally, she has something unique to offer. Finally. She gives something 
to Jacob that Rachel can't give him. As perfect as she is in every way, she can't give him what he really longs for, which is a male child to carry on the family name. And she can. This is it. Surely he will love me now. He's got to. This has got to flip the switch inside of him. Surely. You have to know this feeling, the feeling of chasing after people's ever capricious approval. Finally, now they'll be happy. Now they will like me. Now they'll look up to me. Now they'll stop criticizing me. Now they'll follow me. Now they'll appreciate me. Now they'll stop talking about me. Now they'll want me. Now my dad will think well of me. Now my mom will have compassion on me. Now my family will finally be proud of me. Now my wife will finally respect me. Now my husband will pay attention to me. Now my friends will want to be around me. Now my church will finally support me. Now my community will fully accept me. Now my job will finally promote me. Now my best friend will finally forgive me. Now my children will finally look up to me. Do you love me? Do you love me now? Remember, we were taking Financial Peace University back in the day. And Dave Ramsey said this. He said, we work jobs we don't like to buy things we don't need with money that we don't have to impress people we don't know. It's just true. And it's, it's meant to get to what you think will get you what you want to impress somebody, to finally be enough. And when you get there, poof, it's not it. They didn't, you didn't, it didn't, whatever you were expecting, poof. I was struck with this passage between the sisters and I'd never thought of before. Leah says in verse 32, became pregnant and gave birth to a son and she named him Reuben for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now in desperation, right? And when Rachel, you go one verse later in chapter 30, verse one, when Rachel saw that she was not bearing uh, Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. It's like, here you have Leah, it's give me love or I'll die, and she has children. And then you got Rachel, give me children or I die, and she has love. I was talking to Heidi about this, and I was just like, man, it it doesn't matter what you have. You always want what you don't have. And sometimes you'll be on the other side. Somebody's like, man, I just really wish I had what you have. And you're like, "Uh, it's not what you think it is. But you do that to other people thinking what you think it is, is what it is. And it's not. And if we could all have an honest conversation with each other, whatever you think that I am or have that you don't have or you want, I'm telling you, it doesn't do what it looks like it's doing on Instagram. 
I mean, this desperation, if I have this or else I die, I just wish I was dead if I didn't have this. That's the way it will be because desperation is kind of how we function in our culture. And man, I hate the feeling of being desperate or pitiful or needy or pathetic. But we, when we get like this, are all those things, bro, sis. The most dangerous emotion is desperation. Almost every destructive decision we make as humans comes from this unreliable feeling of pressing need. I need it or else. Or else what? Some food for thought out of this passage. No matter what or who you are and what you have, you will want what you don't have. Somehow we are nagged with a pestering feeling that we never have quite enough and never are quite enough. Rachel's childless, Leah's loveless, and they both want each other's lives. People who have all the things want that one thing. And the ones who have that one thing want all the things. Both these sisters wanted what the other had. What is it in our nature that makes us fixate and ruminate on what we don't have? Why do we spend so much time in our life wanting someone else's life? This happened on spring break this year. I I didn't go on spring break, but I vicariously went on all of your spring breaks. I mean, all over the place. They looked wonderful, by the way. I loved them. Until I talked to the people who came back from spring break, and I am not kidding you, literally over 80% of who I talked to about how wonderful their spring break look came back and said, it was horrible. Bro, it was horrible. Well, what about that hiking in the mountains? Yeah, my kids hated it. Half of us, we we wanted to hike because we wanted to sightsee. The other half wanted to lose weight and cellulite. And so they sped walked the whole time at that beautiful location. And then we went there, beautiful location, where do they want to be in the hotel on their screens the whole time? After a while, we just didn't even fight it anymore. Yeah, we went there, but then on the way home, we were stuck in an airport for two days. It was horrible. Oh yeah, we went to the mountains. It was wonderful. Uh, On the way back, engine blew. Oh, the whole last part of it was horrible. Just can't even believe it. Yeah, we went on vacation. It was okay, I guess, but man, we went with our family. Extended family, that was just torture. (laughs) Torture. We should have gone all by ourselves another one, but we decided to go with our friends and we like each other, but not that much. Over and over and over again. Stephen Furtick put it this way. The reason we struggle with insecurity or desperation is because we compare our behind the scenes with everyone else's highlight reel. And all we see every day is their highlight reel. And if you get in a conversation and they got in a conversation with you, whatever they're desperate for that you have or whatever you're desperate for that they have, neither one of you like what you have. The blessing is to... Want what you have, not have what you want. So one person said, God, help me to want what I have today instead of thinking I've got to have what I want. You will never find contentment until you rid yourself of comparison. You will never find joy until you eradicate jealousy. Only then can you say with Leah, no matter what comes my way, I will praise you, God. Thank you for my life. 
Cammie used to write all over when she was little on the walls of our shower with this shower crayon. I love my life. I love my life. I love my life. I love my life. It is all over the walls. I'd get in there and I'd be surrounded with I love my life. This was Cammie Rose Holdridge. And some of you need to say, honey, can you uh, stop by Meyer on the way home? Get me some shower crayons because I need to in the morning wake up and say, I love my life. I don't want your life. I want my life. In fact, in Ecclesiastes, after he had everything he could ever want, he said, so I'm finding this is what gives me pleasure, to love the wife of my youth, to enjoy my, my lot in life. This is what brings peace. Enjoy your lot in life, your lane. Screw somebody else's lot. They probably want your lot. And it's like, Quite simply, it's like, God, please help this, this thief of joy, which is comparison, is in this text. Please, God, help me not to bypass all the goodness that you've blessed me with because I don't have that. It goes on and she gives names to all of these boys that she starts having. And she's having the boys, not because she wants the boys, because she wants love. Amen. Imagine being born to a mom. It's like, you're not enough. I thought you'd do it, but I, I need something over here. And so I'm going to have another one and another one and another one because I'm going for something here. Since Leah became pregnant, gave birth, there's Reuben. Conceived again, gave birth, Simeon. Conceived again, gave birth, Levi. <laughs> Fourth time, she gave birth and named him Judah. Uh, I call this the three failed attempts at trying to secure love in her life before there was an identity shift. Reuben, his name means, behold, a son! Which is a way of saying, look! Look, Jacob, this is exactly what you wanted! Do you love me now? This is what you've been talking about. You don't have a son. You need a son. I got you a son. Do you love me now? Surely he will love me now. Look, it's a boy. That didn't do it. She conceives again and has Simeon, which means listen and obey. She says, look, I'm finally doing everything right. I'm towing the line. I did everything right. God, listen to me. He sees I'm doing everything right. I did everything right. Now do you love me? Everything you've demanded, everything you've wanted, I've, I've been obedient right down to the letter of the law. Everything has been right. Aren't you? Doesn't it hurt your heart when you've done everything right and the other person has what? They didn't even do everything right and they got it. I don't know how many women actually are in this passage like, I want a kid so bad and the one that hopes they never have kids keeps having kids. The person who got their tubes tied has kids. The person who got the visectomy has kids. Oh God, so miraculous. He gave us kids. It's like, I don't got nothing tied. I don't got nothing snipped. I can't have kids. This is a cruel joke, a cosmic joke. What are you doing? I'm doing everything right. We have relations, I hang upside down, I, I, I take the right pills, I go to the doctor, I've been doing this stretch, that stretch, this diet, that diet, I've done everything, how's come my life won't work out like theirs? Ah! I know what I'll do, I'll have another kid. 
Third time's the charm, right? She does. Names him Levi, which means united or attached. Surely he'll be attached to me now. Look, this will bring us together. This will bring us together. It's been hard, but this will bring us together. Do you know how many people are struggling in their marriage early on and they have a child thinking that child will finally bond us together? And then they stay together until their kids leave like the kid will keep us together. But the minute they're gone and we're empty nesters, we're out of this thing. It doesn't do it. I don't care what you think will bring you together. Oh, let's build a house. Uh, let me just tell you on that front, that will not bring you together. <laughs> but it'll be on 10 acres of land and you can hunt and I can have my garden. See, we Levite ourselves right-handed God's blessing. No, Levi ain't gonna do it. Reuben ain't gonna do it. Simeon ain't gonna do it. And so the last one, Judah comes along and she says, I'm done with that. This time, I will praise the Lord. You're good, and I'm grateful. Like, when is it going to come to that? This time I'll praise the Lord. Looking for love, I took all of these Hebrew words and busted them into what we're looking for. I've become what I thought you wanted. I've done everything you've asked. I've tried everything I know to do to get close to you. Pivoting, God, I receive your love and live for your pleasure. Looking for respect, I've tried to impress you with my success. I've set aside my desires to meet your demands. I've done all I know to do to make you proud of me. God, I seek your approval. I want your love. I'm done with that. I mean, this was huge for me on my sabbatical six years ago. I wrote about it one day because I knew this desire to be respected inside of me and looked to a certain way was just a wound in my life. When I was a kid, I grew up and I was good at sports. And when you're good at sports in high school, like you'd get all kinds of attention and the girls like you and get these accolades and stuff. And I remember I was graduating. I didn't do great in schoolwork, of course. Didn't really apply myself. And I remember this one kid said to me these words, when you go to college, you might be athletic, but you're not academic and you're gonna still be working at Ontario Orchards and I'm gonna go get a degree because what you are and what you do isn't gonna amount to much. There it was right there. Ain't gonna amount to much, Jay. That's all, that's gonna go bye-bye. Oh yeah, I'm not gonna amount to much. And then I get into this cycle and I'm in this cycle every week. This isn't like way back when. If I can prove to you, then I can get you to approve of me. And then I can disprove all my haters and my skeptics and my naysayers. But in order to keep going, I got to improve. In order to prove myself, to get your approval, to disprove my critics. But then I got to improve in order to, you know, get attention and keep attention. In this world, like if you don't keep improving, you're not going to get attention. And you certainly aren't going to keep attention. So you're in this cycle. I'm in this cycle. And so I go to college and I'm telling you, I worked hard in college because I heard this one kid that said I wasn't going to amount to much. And I worked to be on the dean's list to get that gold 
golden sash around me. And every night it would be two in the morning and I'd want to quit studying. I'm like, I'm not quit studying because I want that guy to know he was full of crap and I'm going to prove to him. And then poof, he's gone. He doesn't even know I'm having this conversation. And this is in my head for years, beginning in ministry, going through ministry, because it just stays there. Impressing people, improving. Trying to be remarkable, trying to go viral, whatever it is. It's a rat race, it's a hamster wheel, it's a goat rodeo. How about looking for friendship? This is just killing people. I've tried to make myself as winsome as possible so that I'm wanted. I've tried to be so good you don't even need other friends. That's a huge one. I've tried to make you my best friend by pleasing you and doing everything you want me to do. And it's so frantic and desperate. And friends come and friends go and you see them with other friends and you're not invited to that trip, but they were invited to that trip and you've got 16 best friends that you post about all the time and it's a house of cards that's caving in. And you gotta say, God, I want your friendship more than anyone else. Looking for attention, I've tried to stand out and be special in some way. I've tried to get better and better so you'll notice me. I've tried everything I know to feel important to you. Forget it. God, I long for your eyes to see me and for your smile. Looking for promotion. I've tried to prove to you I'm worth more. I've tried to make you need me to be indispensable in this company. I've tried to strive for greatness and turn heads. God, you made me, and I trust your plan for my life. I'm gonna go all Judah on this thing. This time, I'm gonna praise you. Remember a book in college, it was called The Search for Significance, and it was just like, that's what we're in, the search for significance, this obsession with being unique, this compulsion to be important. Maybe they'll love me now. It's really just a handful of simple and common questions that humans are asking innately. Do you love me? Do you know me? Do you really see me? Do you want me? Do you value me? Do you respect me? Do you trust me? Like if you're on God's lamp in the fetal position, it's all, I will always love you and I will never leave you and you are in search to find that. The other side of the coin of this spoken more negatively in question form is will you leave me? Will you replace me? Will you keep pursuing me? Will you get sick of me? Will you betray me? Will you forget about me? Will you remain when I fail? That's why some of us are so scared of failure because we think failure is final, failure's fatal, and that everybody's just gonna drop you like a bad habit the minute you fail, and it's not true. And the ones that do don't matter. And the ones that matter won't. Will you reject me when I sin? This is a huge one spiritually. I grew up in an atmosphere where, man, if you didn't behave, then you wouldn't belong anymore. And in our church, it was actually a word. It's a real word called disfellowshipped. 
On your way in, they give you the right hand of fellowship, and on the way out after you sin, in some way, you're you know, given the backhand of fellowship, so to speak. Man, am I gonna get disfellowshipped? Even in this church, like some of you just hide, and I just want you to know, like, we already know you're messed up. And you're like, well, are you presuming I'm guilty until proven innocent? No, I'm just telling you I know how humans are. And we're already that way. Just, you can go to another church if you want to just put on a mask and be all plastic and vanilla, but that's not here. I'm messed up. I'm this, I'm Leah. I'm Rachel. I'm Jacob. I'm Laban. I'm all these people in this story. And I don't want to be. So that's why we're here. We're not here because we're not this. We're here because we don't want to be this anymore. Man, just simple childlike questions. Am I a burden to you? I remember Allie, when I was taking her to a daddy-daughter dance one time, I took her to dinner. We were on the way to the ball in the Cherry Creek Cafeteria. (laughs) And I had a hard day, and I came in. I was taking her to the ball, and we came in. or We pulled into the driveway, and we were walking in, and she looked at me, and she said, Dad, are you having fun? And you know when you're 37 years old and you got a lot on your mind and you don't really want to be at a ball in a cafetorium? What she's asking me is, are you doing this and do you want to do this or is this a burden to you, something on your to-do list or is this something you want to be at? That doesn't go away. You, sometimes, have you ever been in a group of friends and all of a sudden there's like this silence and you feel like, oh, maybe I'm not entertaining enough and I don't know, <laughs> let's just go home. Or people just start feeling antsy and you're like, I don't know if I'm funny enough and I really want to tell a joke, but I don't have any. And It's just so weird. Watching adults do this is crazy. And what they're like, am I a burden? Am I attractive? Am I funny? Am I missed? Am I boring? Or am I interesting is the other side of that? Am I special? Am I needed? Am I enough? Many of us just find ourselves with the same false hope that Leah struggled with. We keep saying to ourselves, surely if I do this, they will. But often we find when our identity is performance-based or shame-based, we're left disappointed and feeling like a disappointment to others. Things you thought would cause other people to respect you didn't. Things you did that you thought would bring you satisfaction didn't. Stuff you finally got that you thought would bring you joy didn't. People you thought would stay when you bent over backwards for them didn't. Your employer that you expected would notice and promote you didn't. Your spouse that you thought would finally respond with excitement didn't. The things you always dreamt would bring you fulfillment and meaning didn't. There's a I've had a collapse of this like the last three years, like God has used the last three years to burn out of me so much debris. I don't know if it burned everything down, but it was burning everything down in in its wake. I just, my main prayer as everything was burning to the ground is the good stuff would stay standing. Because I didn't know if it would burn down the good stuff too. As my heart was getting burnt down, I was like, am I going to care about anything or anyone when this is all over or not? 
And I remember one of the things is that there was this one guy, and I'm just so embarrassed to admit it, but I'm just going to admit there's this one guy who was a businessman. And because everybody called me a jock growing up. I didn't know what a jock was until I looked it up yesterday. It's a guy with a lot of talents, but a small brain. <laughs> Bro. Me? And it made total sense in how it was used in the context of the conversation. Oh, he's just a jock, you know? He's just a jock. You know what happens to jocks after high school. They drink a lot of beer, they get a beer belly, and they live in the basement of their mom's house. That's what happens to jocks. And I was trying with this guy when I came here, as I was kind of raising up in leadership, I could never get his affirmation. He just, he would always poke fun at me. And he was like, oh, you got a great personality and a lot of people love you and you're a great speaker and all this stuff, but you just don't understand systems and structures and policies and procedures and protocol. And yes, I do. I memorized those words I did for you. For you, I know those things. I'm learning spreadsheets. I love spreadsheets. I love them. I love them. Can't wait to look at another spreadsheet. Can't wait. Do you love me now? No, you don't love me now? Oh, we're growing. So I got, okay, I'm going to do a capital campaign. You're not going to be able to do a capital campaign. That's not the way that you've been made. You're going to have to have somebody else. No, I'm going to do a capital campaign. Raise the money for the capital campaign. Start paying down debt. Do you love me now? Do you love me now? No, no, no. You don't love me now? Okay, okay. We're, we're growing. We're growing. Let's build another building. Nine million dollars. I'll do a capital campaign. And we finish the whole thing. And we move into the building. And three weeks later, this one dude in my head right now, decides he's going to leave and he's gone after all that and it just hit me Judah it's got to be all for you and it's all got to be God I don't have to have an obsession with me being liked and them being pleased for the rest of my life I want you to be pleased God this time, this time, I'm not going to do what I do every time. This time, I'm going to turn my eyes to you and say, you're enough, God. Enough of that. You're enough, God. Man, it's this thing of, do you have what it takes? Do you have what it takes, Jay? Just, just show him you do. Show him, show him, show him. Do you love me now? Surely you love me now. And I'm telling you, for all the love and care that I have, I am in a space now, I don't know what it is, and I've told people this the last couple months, I just don't care. I don't care whether you like me whether you love me, I just am like, God, you made me. I love who you made me to be. I'm going to die soon. I don't have much life left. I can't be consumed and obsessed with all that. And I will just be Reuben and Simeon and Levi in a cycle my whole life until I'm like, I'm done with it, God. Judah, my heart today, God. This time, this time, we're going to praise you, God. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that you didn't just give us stuff in bullet points, but you gave us stories for us to climb into and unpack and to find ourselves in. And I pray as we leave today, 
that will let you come into those rooms inside of the house of our heart and say, you have access to all of it, God. And whatever you want to burn away, Lord, just separate the dross from the gold and the chaff from the wheat. Please, God, do that. God, we don't have any more time to lose and the enemy's stealing so much of our mental energy with all the sideways energy given to things that are just so superfluous and so shallow and superficial. We have your love as your children and you don't love us more when we behave or less when we don't. Your love has been purchased to us through the work of Christ on the cross. Not our work, not our effort. Yours, Lord. So we receive that grace today and we live from approval, not for approval. Approval, God. Send us into this world with this rare, precious pearl of great price called security in God and let that make a difference in our life this week. I pray this in your son's powerful name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Hey, we got prayer warriors up here. If you just are battling with stuff in your head, make sure you come on down for prayer.